in the end of our previous presentation, we had stopped at the fundamental concepts which Patanjali introduces and which will offer us a great variety of psychic experience through yoga and which Patanjali introduces as one of the most spectacular and one of the most useful concepts of Raja Yoga in particular and of yoga in general and that is the concept of Samyama. I would like to refresh the memory of those who heard about it last time and to say a few words about it for those who have not been here in our previous presentation that Samyama, in the way in which Patanjali introduces it, it is the blending, the harmonious blending, the unification of dharana, dhyana and samadhi of one-pointed concentration, of expansion of the mind and of samadhi. And this concept of Samyama is translated in various ways in the Western languages because it is a concept which is so alien to daily life that it's kind of almost impossible to find uh, an equivalent in the normal psychology of the human being, although that is not entirely true. The yogis who have seen these things from the standpoint of their spiritual experience and as it mixes with their daily life, they have most often called Samyama, they have called it under the name of identification. To perform samyama on an object, or to perform samyama on a human being, or to perform samyama on a concept, or an astral, or on an abstract idea, it means actually to concentrate on that thing until you become one with it, until you identify with it. This identification being not an unconscious identification, but actually being a supra-conscious, a supra-mental, as Aurobindo said it, uh, identification. This concept of identification is fundamental because to be able to know the universe, we actually always do identification. Identification is the actual way of performing the act of knowledge. For example, Albert Einstein, when he understood the theory of relativity, and according to his own saying, there were not ten people on earth, he thought, at that time on earth, who could really understand what he meant, Albert Einstein expressed that, because most people try to understand the theory of relativity mathematically, or through its symbols, or what it means as physics, but everybody seems to forget that Albert Einstein was not a very good student in mathematics and physics and that his understanding was of a different kind. Anybody who knows anything about the history of science and who likes to hear things about the 20th century great scientific revolution with quantum mechanics and relativity probably has heard the story because Einstein himself answered and he acknowledged that the way in which he discovered the theory of relativity was because he saw it with his mind's eye performing the famous Gedanken experiment or mental experiment, thought experiment, imaginary experiment. 
the experiment by which Albert Einstein managed to pierce the veil of illusion in this direction is an experiment which is colossal. Albert Einstein tried to imagine in full detail what would happen if he would travel at light speed on the tip of a light beam. He imagined what would happen if he would be the front photon or the front light particle on a light beam and he would fly like this through the universe at light speed. How would the universe appear then from that referential? And this imagination, you can try, you are very welcome to try tonight or at some time, try to imagine that you are in the tip of a light beam and you project with a huge speed, the light speed, speed in the universe. And what do you see? This act of wild imagination is so difficult that even Albert Einstein took years before he perfected. You can say that Albert Einstein, in a certain way, and that was acknowledged by many of the historians of physics, and it happened to other physicists as well, was rather a dreamer. His mental experiment is a form of daydreaming. He basically, in terms of yoga, identified with the top particle of a light beam. He thought about the front photon of a light beam so hard until he became that particle. And when he felt like that, he saw what that photon would see. This is the way of knowing. In the same way quantum uh, physicists and others, they identified with atomic levels of consciousness and it is very spectacular that such thing that a human being can become as small as an atom are actually powers which are mentioned in yoga since more than 2500 years. The yogis discovered already that a human being can go into the atomic world and understand the atoms and the elementary particles. Not only that the ancient Greeks and especially the ancient Vedic culture, they had units of time and space and descriptions of the atomic world, but at the same time we find that in Mer mystics. Meulana Rumi or Jalaluddin Rumi, a pure bhakti yogi, a great mystic, the founder of Sufism. If you will bother to read some of his words, Meulana Rumi speaks about galaxies, relativity, and yes, Meulana Rumi speaks about quantum mechanics, not exactly in the terminology of the scientists, but the concepts are ultimately the same. Meulana Rumi describes the atomic structure and the subatomic structure of matter, and that cannot come from anything else in his case, where his life story is known pretty well, but from a mystical knowledge. That is why, actually, Samyama is a manner of knowing the reality. As you are going to see, Patanjali himself demonstrates some amazing things, showing you want to know the universe, such as astronomy or the macrocosm, this is the way to do it. You want to know the human body because you want to be a doctor or something, this is the way to do it. That means there is a Samyama for each and every form of knowledge. And this chapter number three will excel in describing approximately 30 different types of Samyama, which are one more impressive than the other, and one more tempting than the other, as you are going to see. And that is why Samyama is actually the way in which we know existence. 
we are ourselves because we identify with ourselves. Remember that even in Laya Yoga, we try to break this identification with the ego when we say, you tell to yourself that you are not yourself, but some high spirit evolved yogi meditating and all the rest which you probably remember. Therefore, this process of identification is permanent, which means on one hand, the human beings identify anyhow. I told you that it can be produced even by psychoactive substances to a certain extent. And therefore, with identification, we first of all have the division that identification is voluntary and involuntary, or even better said, conscious or unconscious. Actually, every person in this room performs a formidable samyama, but it is unconscious and involuntary. If you identify with the idea that fire burns, you will get burned by fire. And when an NLP practitioner deprograms you and hypnotizes you, then in a weekend you can walk on fire and not get burned because you do not identify with that. Therefore, actually, we identify in whatever we do. And that is why human beings have been known to do amazing things. People believe that they have a limit in their strength. But a woman in an emergency lifted a one and a half ton truck to save the life of her son. Nobody, not even Olympic champions, cannot lift a ton and a half. And the woman who thought she could lift maximum 30 kilos or something, she lifted a ton and a half. Are there and other examples are there the Qigong practitioners subjecting their body to incredible challenges, the people who walk on fire, the ones who pierce their bodies, slice off their tongue, do all kinds of incredible feats, and miraculously enough, their body does not react the way it is supposed to react. Therefore, we are dealing with acts of identification all the time. And these identifications are actually the mark of the paranormal. I am advising you to take a simple study of metallurgic industry of iron, casting and others, where I have described, I found the description, and actually I found it confirmed in the metallurgic industry of today in some primitive countries, that you know how the master blacksmith in the big iron uh, foundries, how they knew the exact composition of the iron mixtures when they were doing special mixtures and if the temperature was right to cut it. They used a method which sounds incredible today, but I have heard of people who have seen it with their own eyes. I've heard of, I've known people who have seen it with their own eyes. I personally have not seen this one. The master founder, the master blacksmith, was putting his hand in a bucket of water, and then he was putting his head in the red-hot iron with that, with a bare hand, like this, and he was churning through the melted iron. And he was taking it out, and he said, it's good, you can pour it, you can cast it in forms. Like, who would dare to put their hand in red-hot molten iron? That's a city already. That city exists even in the household. Everybody knows, especially if you go in a household where the wife, the housewife, the mother of the family is this kind of hard-working cook kitchen woman who cooks for 20 people in the family all day long, 
that these women, for example, they can take boiling pots with their bare hands like this and move them through the kitchen. And nobody else can grab a boiling pot at the 100 degrees temperature or more. You'd get burned. And these women develop a kind of hasty way. When you look how they do it, they just say, oh, it's very easy. You just take it like this and put it like, it's like, you know, it's a slide of hand almost. It's like, how do you do that? You know, it's like a skill I would like to learn. And you can still see it in some countries where some of this uh, kitchen culture still exists. And that is why I'm telling you all these to understand that our whole life is a samyama. But usually we do samyama involuntarily and unconsciously. And the things with which we do samyama become us. I am stupid, I am weak, I am this and I am that. Because I actually make samyama with that. I identify myself with that existential condition. That is why Samyama is not that difficult all in all. Actually Samyama is difficult to do deliberately. It's exactly like with Shambhavi Mudra. Your mind visualizes all kinds of crap. But when you ask it to visualize a ping pong ball, it doesn't wish to do that. Therefore actually Samyama is possible and our mind latently has that capacity perfectly well. I would like to insist once more. Actually the very first sutras from Yoga Sutra, if you will read again the very first sutras which we commented already long time ago, in those very sutras, in the very first ones, our attention is called upon a very simple thing. Whatever the mind focuses upon, the mind, the spirit assumes that form. Those of you who remember me commenting on those sutras, I said then that it's exactly like a crystal, a quartz crystal, a translucent quartz crystal. If you put it on a piece of pink paper, the whole crystal looks pink, although actually it's transparent, but it borrows the color of the support. And it's exactly like if you think something, like I gave last time an example about the disciple who became identified to a yak to a Tibetan yak, this buffalo uh, family, animals which grow up, which live in Tibet. And he became so much identified to a yak that he felt he had horns and they were so big that he couldn't come out of his cave because they got stuck in the walls of the cave. Therefore, what I'm trying to say here is whatever the mind thinks, it becomes, it assumes the form. In a literal way, you can say that things which you visualize, they appear in your astral body. You really build them, like in Shambhavi Mudra, where you materialize the ping-pong ball and whatever vision. And the same thing is valid, of course, in the mental body, where the mind is even more free to assume shapes and to follow ideas. Therefore, there is Samyama everywhere. But the Patanjali is speaking now, will come back to taking charge of this Samyama and using it constructively because normally our Samyama is used by the Samskaras, by the Kleshas, if you remember, the impurities of the mind which leave latent impressions in our mind and those keep on building whatever they want, not whatever we want. That is why Remember that uh, the Samyama is a fundamental instrument and it is the instrument by which we live and it is the instrument through which we know the universe. Any one of you wants to know a human being, you'll have to do Samyama on that human being. 
Every one of you wants to know the universe, you will have to perform some yama on the universe. Every one of you wants to know the human body, you will have to perform some yama on the human body. That's the way of knowing, and that is what very few scientists reach. It seems that Niels Bohr, Albert Einstein, and the likes of them, they had such a great mixture of power of concentration, visualization, imagination, and which turned eventually into meditation, that even without studying yoga, they did a sort of samyama, this modern science, many modern scientists, the model of the holographic universe of Bohm, the model of the multidimensional universe of Talbot and others, the different, the different, different models, the string theory, and of course coming back to the Copenhagen model and the quantum mechanics and relativity, all of them have as basis samyama. That is why the truth is that the normal scientists don't even understand them. There are professors who play with formulas and they pretend they understand. But actually, if you try to really ask the delicate things of it, you will see that besides the mathematical formalism, there is not a feeling of it like the way it is. That's why modern science actually with its extreme jnana, this knowledge, it actually has reached to mysticism. The extreme jnana has become God-realization. Eventually, that's why Albert Einstein, Niels Bohr, Werner Heisenberg and others, they were firm believers in a cosmic consciousness because they discovered it through meditation. They went to the edge of cosmic consciousness where the mind could not go further. They have pushed their samyama to extraordinary levels. That is why Samyama is a wonderful instrument for knowing reality and remember that we do it anyhow unconsciously and Patanjali is only unraveling the mystery of it and is explaining the mechanisms of it and then he is teaching us what kind of Samyama. He gives examples, samples of what Samyama you can do to acquire what kind of knowledge or existential condition or level of consciousness. Here is a point where the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali, especially in this third chapter, it betrays a little bit its character, because the Yoga Sutra, generally speaking, is a Vedantic type of text, is a dry type of text, is an ascetic type of text, which discriminates, which separates Purusha from Prakriti. The followers of Yoga Sutra, as well as Patanjali himself, all the time seem, exactly like the Vedantics, to want to give up Maya and to go for Purusha, to go for Brahman. The Prakriti does not interest them at all. They are only interested in the Supreme, into the Transcendent. And therefore, why would you want then to perform samyama on a light beam? Why would you want to perform samyama on the human body? Why would you want to perform samyama on the pole star or on the sun or on things like this? When the pole star and the sun and the human body and other things like this, as I have mentioned, they are all parts of maya. 
They are all forms of illusion. Why would you bother understanding the solar system when the solar system is actually a Fata Morgana altogether in the view of Vedanta and uh, similar theories? And therefore, if you would get to know very well the solar system and thus understand astrology, for example, wouldn't that be a waste of time? Because astrology is completely, completely lower than self-realization, which is the pure transcendence, the pure Atman, the pure void, the pure Nirvikalpa. And if we would go according to the precepts of Patanjali, who is so strict in chapter 1, who is so strict in chapter 2, and who is so strict in chapter 4, as you are going to see, then chapter 3 wouldn't have any place there, only as explaining a mental mechanism and then going beyond that. But funny enough, Patanjali capitalizes on this and uses almost a whole chapter to speak about what is possible to get from this Ajna Chakra and from focusing therefore not about the tangency line, not in Purusha, in the transcendent, but focusing in Prakriti, in the immanent, which is like betraying your own goals. Patanjali, chapter number 4, defines that the purpose is the isolation of the spirit, Kaivalya, it's called Kaivalya Pada, that the spirit should break away from Mother Nature and become pristinely isolated, free, completely free from any feedback or limitation from material world, from manifestation. But then why would you perform Samyama on an elephant or God knows what that is, when those belong precisely to this world which you are trying to surpass through the pure spiritual noses. And therefore, you find out that either Patanjali is not really consistent with himself and he makes a little bit of a compromise, a kind of little rabat to, from his strictness, and you say, yeah, well, that and also there are also these very interesting things, or more plausibly, it is actually that Patanjali uses this as a sort of incentive, although he himself preaches that all these things are kind of dangerous and uh, collateral paths, diversions from the main spiritual path, nevertheless they are interesting and thrilling. People say, oh, I would like to do that. I can bet with you that whoever reads or hears all this commentary which I make to the Yoga Sutra will say, wow, it's uh, beautiful, uh, this spiritual thing which they keep talking about, but even those of you who are still not burning for this big ideal of liberation and enlightenment and nirvikalpa might find very, very thrilling aspects in the chapter number three, where, well, I don't know if I'll make it to Nirvikalpa, but I surely would like to do this or to acquire this, because it's something very practical, which would work in everyday life, or which would make my day one way or another. And that is why we can also say that Patanjali uses it as an incentive, or like a kind of seduction. Come to yoga, because look what you can do if you come to yoga. In hoping that in the end you are not going to fall for it, but go for the big thing. It is a little bit in the same way in which Jesus performs a countless line of miracles, although his point is not to show that he can do miracles, but to make people try to love God and try to be perfect and try to reach God. And uh, miracles are only a sort of... Temptation are just a sort of 
attraction, a pick-me-up type of thing, not the very essence of his message. And therefore, this chapter number three also can be judged, metaphysically speaking and conceptually speaking, as being the more, the most tantric chapter from all the Yoga Sutra, because unlike the others where Prakriti is discarded all the time, now here Patanjali is showing to us that this Prakriti can be explored, can be used, can be exploited if you want the hard word, can be understood and you can go deep into it. And some people again would say, why would you waste your time with that when you want to reach the transcendent, the nirvana? That's the whole conflict between Tantric and Vedantic spirituality. The Vedantic spirituality is Puritanic and says only that, and the Tantric spirituality is global, it is com comprising, and it says no, both. We want both, not only that, but also this. And therefore here, Patanjali acts, it's true, it's at a very high level, it's through Ajna, but still Patanjali acts in a certain way, like this would be a tantric ideal, like you can do some things in this manifestation, yes, in this illusory, unworthy manifestation, with Samyama, you can do a lot of things. Therefore, Samyama is... Uh, creating a distinct node, and it is very, very used in tantric tradition, where they speak about samyama, samarasya, and all kind of derivations, like you have very well in Laya Yoga, this expansion, this merging, this dissolving, is actually a form of samyama. We can say that when you make meditation, Laya Yoga style, with the mantra of fire, and you suddenly feel that you have become fire, and you are melting into an ocean of fire, and you are a droplet of fire merged in a cosmic ocean of fire, you are actually making samyama with fire. The process of yoga, of laya, or dissolving, is nothing else but a process of samyama in terms of raja yoga, in terms of patanjali. And that is why Samyama, like Laya, Samarasya and others, is actually a typically tantric process, and because it refers to the world of energy, to the manifested world, to Prakriti, to Shakti, unlike the dry methods which want to cut off the Shakti completely and just go into the void where there would be no more Prakriti, no more Shakti whatsoever. And therefore, Funny enough, yes, this chapter is a bit tantric in character, and this makes it uh, also more spectacular, actually. And at the same time, this chapter is also the origin, the source of confusions, of serious confusions. Unfortunately, as I said, and I need to uh, repeat that, the Buddhist tradition was trying to put down all the old uh, heritage from heritage from the Hindus because they wanted to present themselves as being separate. While the Hindus do so, we Buddhists are very pure and we do so. We don't deal with this crap, we are exclusively focused on that, we are not interested in that and so. And this thing with Samyama was one of the very first ones to fall under the butcher's knife because Samyama appeared to Buddha and to the early Buddhist authors 
the ones from Theravada, from the old Buddhist tradition, from the original one, it's not the same in Tibetan Buddhism, for example, in Mahayana or Vajrayana types of Buddhism, because those are tantric forms of Buddhism, but in the old Buddhism, which is like the one practiced locally here, you cut off all those things and you make it extremely dry and severe. And that is why it's like, why would you ever want to make Samyama on whatever? You don't want to make Samyama on anything, the only exception perhaps being Nirvana or the Void, the Buddha nature, or if you want in terms of Vedanta, Atman, Brahman. That would be the only Samyama which is actually interesting, because all the others are leading not to enlightenment, but to Siddhis. And that is why Samyama immediately fell under the butcher's knife, knowing that many yogis living in the forest, even Buddha lived with some of the Samans, some of the yogis of the forest, and perhaps many of them were aspiring after cities, or obtaining cities, or doing such processes, and knowing that many of them did samiyama, like there is no doubt that some of them were sitting and focusing at the sun, looking into the sunshine for hours every day, or others, and when you concentrate one hour on the sun, it tends to become a samiyama, it's more than a concentration, it's more than a meditation, because you tend to start blending all of them. So any concentration of long term will eventually become an identification. And that's why Buddhist authors say, yeah, yeah, we have seen yogis trying to become like a tree or like a sun or like an elephant or like, I don't know, focusing in their own belly button or something. We don't want to do those. Those are stupid things. Unfortunately, and that's an advanced source of confusion, some of the Buddhist authors, because those texts were not coming from the Sanskrit tradition, but from the Pali tradition, which is a vernacular language, it's not the original one, they have also mixed up terms and they sometimes don't even use Samyama. When they criticize, they actually criticize Samadhi which is quite ridiculous because Samadhi is exactly what the Buddhists look for when they want to reach Nirvana. Nirvana is literally speaking Nirvikalpa Samadhi. So you cannot, it's completely absurd to see that a Buddhist text says, oh, those yogis from before Lord Buddha, they were just going in the forest and trying to achieve Samadhi, but we don't care about that, we want to reach Nirvana. It's like somebody would say, I am not interested in tomatoes, I actually am trying to buy some tomatoes. It's like, it makes no sense whatsoever. And therefore, what I'm saying here is that unfortunately this comes from a misunderstanding and uh, the origin of this issue is actually Samyama. What the ancient Buddhist authors wanted to say, they wanted to say, we heard that many of the yogis living in the forest and whatever, they did lots and lots of Samyama, practicing this identification with different things. They would focus on a thing until they would become absorbed in that thing, till the point of becoming that thing. Why would you want to do that when you are a Buddhist? You want to reach the great void, you want to reach nirvana, you want to reach the Buddha nature, and therefore all those are a waste of time, which is just boosting your ego, creating paranormal abilities, paranormal powers, and others and others. This view is extreme, it is a puritanic view, and it is a bit of an excessive view, it's a bit of a fanatic view, like you really, really, really wouldn't take anything else. As you know, the tantric tradition is much more 
broad-minded, and many others. Generally, the bhakti yoga traditions from all over mankind are very broad-minded because they accept some of the manifested things. Again, when you look in the life of Jesus, you see at the same time a complete focusing on the transcendent, but at the same time the, a kind of liberal acceptation of things which are here and now in this world manifested and not just destroying them or denying them. Uh, therefore, as you, while I always keep telling that the tantric view is the more complete view, it is the holistic view of spirituality, nevertheless you should understand where this comes from. There have been spiritual traditions which have simply criticized Samyama like a useless and even dangerous thing because it can give you power and thus it can deviate you by tempting you and boosting your ego. Nevertheless, Patanjali mentions Samyama, although, by the way, he starts and he finishes this text, he shouldn't, but nevertheless he mentions it, and it is important for you to understand that in the Tantric tradition, Samyama is wonderful. If you want to understand a chakra, if you want to understand an element, like I said before, fire, or any other element for the case, you do some yama by working on that chakra with the bija mantra, with the colors specific to it, with visualizations and with the other methods, and you are actually doing a samyama. Therefore, you can say that when some of us is telling to you, you should work on Ajna chakra, it would be good for you to work on Manipura chakra. If I'm telling to you it would be good for you to work on Manipura Chakra, actually it would be perfect if you would reach to do a hundred percent Samyama on Manipura Chakra. Only the Zen masters, by focusing on Hara every day, every day, every day, they reach to the level of having a hundred percent Samyama on Manipura Chakra. That's where it leads. Basically you can say that Zazen and focusing on Hara is a way that eventually you should reach a hundred percent Samyama on Manipura Chakra. From that resulting also lots of paranormal things, like some of the great Zen masters, they were at the same time great martial artists, and some of them manifested flabbergasting cities or paranormal abilities because their Manipura was gigantic and they already had the paranormal levels of it. The same thing is valid, of course, for every chakra. If we are telling you, do the prayer of the heart until your heart opens, go in your heart completely, like we are going to try in our retreat in May. We have a special retreat for the first time in the history, which is called awakening or exploring the spiritual heart, like indeed going 100% into that, day after day, then automatically we are talking about a Samyama on the heart chakra, like becoming 100% dead. Of course you can say that Jesus definitely was Samyama on the heart chakra. There is 100% heart chakra in Jesus. Of course that's not the only thing, because on top of it he was some Samyama also on Sahasrara, and that's even much more impressive and more important. So in this way, uh, Samyama is an instrument which you use all the time. Last thing to be said, I have already alluded to it, but maybe I pass too quickly over it. Samyama actually applied in an exclusive puritanic direction becomes that, for example, if you make Samyama on the void, you reach the void and therefore you are in Nirvana or in the Buddha nature. 
The Vedantic didn't call it the void, they called it Atman or Brahman. Performing Samyama on Atman, you reach, you become Samadhi. That's why even Samadhi is a consequence of Samyama, they are inseparable, and Samyama is a method which is valid from science, knowing other human beings and nature, the universe, and reaching complete abstract spiritual realization, such as the state of void, nirvana, nirvikalpa. And therefore, as you can see, you cannot dismiss Samyama. You can simply say that the great ascetic yogis, the ones from the dry forms of yoga, Vedanta, Theravada, Buddhism and others, they used Samyama selectively. They discovered Samyama, but they did not want to use it on all kind of little nothings. They wanted to use this Samyama only on one thing, the supreme nature. Who am I? You can say that the method of Ramana Maharishi is a Samyama on the Jivatman. Who am I? He kept on focusing on the heart and asking, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? That the Samyama, ultimately, on Jivatman. That is why actually Samyama is universal and the, the description and the revelation of Patanjali is very beautiful. But remember that people had different attitudes to this Samyama. Like some people considered that some Samyamas were useless, were not to be practiced. While in Tantric Yoga there is a more large approach like yes, if any one of you wishes to do Samyama on the pole star or on whatever and start flying through the air, if you want to perform cutting Samyama on cotton fluff, you can perform Samyama on cotton fluff and fly through the air, levitate. Some people would say it's a waste of time. Right, people do a lot of things which are a waste of time, so why not at least if somebody demonstrates that, it at least gives a demonstration to the fact that the mind rules over reality that mind has the power to change the reality. So, which I have said from the beginning uh, in this way. So, uh, I have in reintroduced us into this wonderful idea of Samyama, what Samyama is, and now I am ready to continue with a few sutras. The sutras which continue from 5 until 16 are really difficult. They are hard sutras, it, is, it feels like Patanjali himself must have written at least a couple of these sutras being in deep meditation because they reflect a very deep insight in the mind, in the intricacies in which the mind relates to the spirit and the way the mind works. They are very difficult, they can sound as one of the most abstract parts of the Yoga Sutra until now, but funny enough, starting with the sutra number 16, it becomes very flashy and very uh, juicy, this Yoga Sutra chapter, because it actually speaks about a lot of wonderful things which are possible through this. However, if you miss this first part, which is more difficult, you will not really understand how Samyama works or what to expect from it. Again, I have tried last time to describe Samyama intuitively as human to human, but of course there is a technical approach to it, and here Patanjali gives you the technicalities of it. Let's elucidate together this part, which again will be like the difficulty which comes before the glory, before we get to taste the cake, the chocolate cake of 
the Samyama applications, we have to go through this arduous part to understand the technology, the subtleties of it. So, we go to the Sutra number 5, which starts saying things about Samyama. It says, by mastering it, which means Samyama, the higher consciousness dawns. The higher consciousness, he calls it Pragya or Prajna, like in Prajna Paramita of the Buddhists, and he says, by Samyama, you get to this Pragya, Prajna, the Supreme Consciousness. Therefore, Patanjali very clearly tells us, even the Supreme Consciousness is also a matter of Samyama. But it is only a Samyama applied selectively, like I don't want to make Samyama with an ant, to understand. I don't want to make Samyama with a rock. I don't want to make Samyama with, I don't know what, with a beam of light. I want to make Samyama directly with the spiritual nature, with the ultimate spirit, with Atman in Vedanta, or the great boy Purusha in Sankhya, or the great boy in Tao and in uh, Theravada, in original Buddhism. And therefore, Patanjali has said, be careful because this Samyama is not just a flashy uh, thing for Siddhis, it is actually the same Samyama that you have to do to reach the highest spiritual nature, only that you have to point that in one exclusive direction. And the Sutra number 6 adds to it, he keeps telling us a few things about it, Samyama occurs by stages towards ever finer planes. There is a great thing to this, it actually uh, tells, first of all, that Samyama, one, with Samyama one should have patience. Some commentators, like Vyasa, they simply say that the implication of Patanjali here is that you should not have haste. You cannot reach full Samyama today. So, in Samyama, if you are in a hurry, you don't reach it. You have to do it gradually. You have to have patience. That's something which everybody learns in spirituality. If you are not patient, you will flunk. You will fall off the path. Only those who have patience will stay on the path and reach the superior levels of the path. Those who are impatient, they come, they do three months of yoga, they go home and they start doing business or whatever they start doing. Yoga was just an esotourism, an entertainment of their young days. For true spirituality, you need to have, of course, the patience. But actually the meaning, the main meaning, is not this. That was a secondary meaning which some authors say. When Patanjali says, Samyama occurs by stages toward ever finer planes. The first is obviously this kind of warning. There are stages, which means nothing is black and white. Everything consists of shades of grey. You cannot say that you do 100% Samyama. You can say that today, when you look at something, you do 5% Samyama, and then after 10 years of yoga, you can do 90% Samyama, which is very good. That means it increases by degrees, day after day, imperceptibly. This, this pranayama occurring, some of you have it already. Last 
there wasn't the other day when one of the pupils of the school said, I have discovered that I looked at somebody who was 10, 20 meters away from me, and I discovered that his clothes were smelling you know, of a certain soap detergent. And then I went and smelled the person, and the person was actually smelling exactly of that soap. Like I can feel the smell of somebody 20 meters away. That's a samyama. It's a samyama on Mulakara Chakra. It shows the capacity of performing samyama at Mulakara Chakra. It is happening often that tantric women say, I made love with my boyfriend, and then three hours later when I was shopping or when I was sitting on my terrace, I suddenly thought of him, and suddenly his smell was all around me. I could feel his smell. That's the samyama on Mulakara and on the beloved person. It's a combination. It's a samyama on the beloved person. Through this, it's like you can evoke the smell. This is a samyama, after all. This evocation can go so far that if you evoke your, for example, in this case with a woman who evokes her lover, if you evoke more, you can make him even appear as a vision, as a kind of holographic vision. You don't need to evoke your lover only olfactively. You can evoke your lover on all the five senses. So you can see him, hear him, feel him, taste him, and smell him at the same time. Therefore, Samyama is indeed a total capacity. And uh, it w- occurs on stages. Some people know very little about this Samyama. And some people say, hey, I must be quite good in Samyama. Yes, it's probably a yin Samyama, a receptive Samyama. You are doing it involuntarily and sometimes even unconsciously. But you do that Samyama. Remember that even these processes of invocation, evocation, when people are possessed by entities, that's a negative example already, there are also forms of Samyama, some of them inferior, some of them plainly negative. Samyama works the same positively and negatively as well. When you produce on yourself uh, wounds or when you do negative things, it's also a Samyama. Surely that can also be applied in a positive way. The ultimate example of Samyama again is the stigmata. St. Francis of Assisi prayed to Jesus until he got wounds in his arms and hands, and in his uh, palms and in his feet. That's Samyama. It's making Samyama with the crucified Jesus. That is a Samyama in which even your body starts copying what has happened to Jesus in that moment, and you share part of that suffering. Therefore, Samyama occurs by stages. You can develop your degree of Samyama very well towards ever finer planes. This is something which can be correlated very well with Tantric Yoga. As you know, the human being, as well as the universal reality, are made of planes. For the human being, there is the physical, the etheric, the astral, the mental, the causal. Patanjali says, according as the Samyama becomes better, or more close to 100%, what that means, actually, is that that Samyama starts happening in the more subtle bodies. For example, you can identify with something or with someone physically, but if you insist and it becomes better, then you identify etherically on the prana maya kosha, on the second body, and the feeling of identification becomes much more deep, 
Then you identify astrally, then you identify mentally, and finally you identify causally, and then the identification is total. And therefore, basically Patanjali says a great secret here, says according as identification increases, enhances, grows up, it actually means that you are going deeper in the koshas, deeper in the bodies. That's why identification starts at a superficial level, but it becomes better and better. Even with those bodies, each one of them is gradual. You can identify with your father or brother or sister or whoever. You can identify with your father physically 10%, and if you continue for two years, you can reach to identify physically 90%. This phenomenon manifests the physicality of it. You can see it in a normal way. Tibetan doctors say that if a woman who is pregnant thinks constantly of a man that she is in love with, and in most of the cases that the biological father of the child, but not always, then the child will look like the man to whom the woman thinks. If the child will be a boy, he will not look like the father. He will look like the lover. Only that usually the father is the lover, in most cases through the kind of society which we have built. But else, therefore, that changes something even physically. You want to go deeper than that? Uh, this samyama is obviously a mental thing. It is created by the mind. And here it is, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa identified to Radha, to a woman, to a female character, because he wanted to see how did Radha love Krishna. He wanted to love Krishna with the same mad love with which Radha loved him. So therefore he identified with Radha. He identified to Radha to the point where he started wearing saris. A male yogi was going around like he was a transvestite of sorts, wearing saris and make, putting lipstick on his lips and completely, like going nuts completely. That's why people thought that Ramakrishna was nuts, because he was ready to go to any length. He was complete, a divine madman, completely. And Ramakrishna stopped at the time where his breast started swelling. He started growing breasts, because he was identifying to Radha. At another time of his life, he started identifying with Hanuman, because Hanuman is another excellent devotee in Indian history, because he was devoted to Rama. But Hanuman, in case you don't know, is a monkey. <laughs> Ramakrishna started identifying with the monkey god Hanuman until his tailbone started sticking out. He was starting growing a tail, because he thought he was a physically. And he had to stop because he realized that he would simply modify his physical body if he went, went, went beyond that. Therefore, all these are examples of Samyama. Samyama is a wonderful instrument. It is the only instrument by which to know reality, to know each other, to know completely what you wish to know. And it comes by stages, and it occurs in ever finer planes, which means the more you practice, the deeper it goes. And the Sutra number 7 is purely technical, and it says the three together, what three together? Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi, because those three together are Samyama. The three together are internal in relation to the previous five ones. Here, Patanjali simply makes us scholarly. He takes a deep breath and he makes us scholarly. 
thing. He simply says those three are internal compared to the first five ones, which are yama, niyama, asana, pranayama, pratyahara. So he simply divides yoga in two, not the first four and the last four as we usually do in our lecture of presentation, but he simply takes the last three. He says the last three are completely internal. They are the antaranga yoga. He uses the word antaranga actually in Sanskrit. He says these three are antaranga in uh, comparison to the others. And therefore, some people have the habit of calling the mental yoga, the raja yoga, the dharana, dhyana, samadhi, antaranga yoga, the internal, while the others are relegated to a more external aspect. In our yoga courses, we demonstrate that it is impossible to do asanas, the tantric style, the agama style, without actually at the same time concentrating, meditating. When you are performing padahastasana, you are performing a samyama on the telluric energy, you are performing a samyama on muladhara chakra, that is why actually an asana in this style is at the same time a meditation and a samyama. And that is making, of course, the whole difference that changes the efficiency of the method. So this was a very dry technical sentence. It could have easily been taken out of the whole Yoga Sutra because it simply conceptualizes. It says these three are internal. But he did it because he was preparing the following sutra, and the following sutra is like he wanted to say this to make a simile, because he wanted to say exactly as these three are so much more spiritual and internal compared to those five, there is something going there. And the sutra number eight says clearly, yet they, these three, are still external to Nirvija Samadhi. He calls it Nirvija Samadhi, Samadhi without Bija, Samadhi without seed. That means if it would have a seed, it would be based on something manifested, Prakriti. But it is a Samadhi without seed, which, is, which means it is based on Purusha or on the void. So it is Nirvikalpa Samadhi. It is the Samadhi of the transcendent, the one based on void, the state of void. And he says, Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi may be internal to everything else, you know, like more close to the spirit, but compared to Nirvija Samadhi, to the Nirvikalpa Samadhi, even those are lower. Like he attracts the attention. This Samyama, this Dharana, Dhyana, Samadhi are good, but they are not yet the Nirvikalpa or the Nirvija Samadhi. So you should put them into perspective. They are the Next step, not the highest step, absolutely. <clears throat> and now, a little bit, let's go into the difficulties. Now there comes a series of some five very difficult sutras, which are coming from deep meditation. Actually, Patanjali, in a totally new way, he starts analyzing the different levels of this Samadhi, Samyama, and Nirvija Samadhi as put together, as put in relationship to each other. And suddenly he uses uh, another word, he introduces another word which is called Parinama, and uh, Parinama would mean like the modification of the transfer or a transformation, 
a state of mind, a state of spirit, and he will define three such states. It is actually starting a very subtle process, because by defining these states, he actually relates them with a certain process in the mind, and then he abruptly starts with the first samyama, which already leads to some exceptional accomplishment. He describes a concentration of the mind, a samyama, which leads to something exceptional, as you will see. I don't know if we have the time to reach there, but that is why this is not just metaphysics, it's not just scholarship that he is doing here, he is actually preparing the ground for the first Samyama, which is one of the most uh, elaborate of all of them. Some of the Samyamas are really difficult to understand, and this will be an example of it. And uh, he actually prepares the ground, but at the same time, he touches a lot of deep subjects. Let us read and see what it is. The Sutra number 9 is rather long, and it says the following things. Nirodha Parinama, so the first one which he introduces is called Nirodha. It's again a Nir, Nirvikalpa, Nirvija, so it's a Nirodha Pranayama. Is that state of transformation of mind which is permitted by the moment of suppression that appears and disappears between incoming and outgoing samskaras. This very difficult formulation is actually showing that Patanjali is speaking about what is called in the tantric tradition of Kashmir a madhya, what we call in the normal yogic tradition a hayatus, and he is talking about a state of interruption. Yogis have noticed that if you analyze the actions of the mind, sometimes the mind is empty, because you catch it between two thoughts. When one thought is finished, and another thought bubbles up to fill up the gap, between two thoughts, there is always a gap. Sometimes our thoughts succeed each other with such a speed that we are not even aware that there is a gap, not to mention to feel it and to stay on it. But nevertheless, if you think, it's exactly like our mind is a screen, a cinema screen, a film, a movie screen, and we are playing something, and then suddenly that, stop is, that thought is over. You know that. You don't think a thought forever. It's over. And the next moment you catch yourself changing the thought. Sometimes your thought changes radically. You start thinking about something entirely different. Sometimes it is a related thought, but it is still a different thought. In between them, there is a moment of stop. There is a hiatus, like when you change a slide in a slideshow. It makes clack, clack. That clock moment can sometimes be long of seconds and more. And in, that, in those moments, you basically remain, as the French say, bush bear, with your mouth open, like flabbergasted, in a state of awe. This stopping of the mind is actually nothing else but a state of void, because the mind stops, the void flashes forth, it comes forth, and you find yourself in a state which you cannot really taste or evaluate first, but which is actually very, very, very spiritual, and unfortunately most people don't identify it and they are afraid of it. When the mind stops, it's almost like something is going terribly bad, and it's really desperating, but it's not. It's actually terribly good, and it is a very, very good thing. So, basically, Patanjali 
to define the states of void, to define the states of samadhi, he uses first, and that's something which is used in Buddhist, both in the Theravada Buddhist and in the Mahayana, Vajrayana, in the Tibetan Buddhist as well. It is used in yoga extensively. Other traditions use them. Kashmir Shaib makes a great deal out of this. Patanjali introduces this interstitial void, this hiatus, and he describes it as a moment of suppression, which is in between. When one thing disappears before the other thing appears, or vice versa, because it works the other way, if you think this way. Also, there will always be a gap. And Patanjali simply says, Niroda Parinama, which is the first of them, is that state of transformation of mind, Parinama is a transformation, as I said, which is permitted, pervaded, filled up, made of, which is permitted by the moment of suppression that appears and disappears between incoming and outgoing samskaras. He, of course, mentions that these incoming and outgoing things are samskaras, because everything we think is because of the samskaras, the subconscious residues, the kleshas in our mind. And therefore, our samskaras or kleshas, vasanas, there are at least three different names used for them in the Sanskrit tradition. They keep making us blah, 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 day and night, even when you dream, you are a victim of your samskaras, which make you dream accordingly. And uh, <coughs> in between them, though, even when your mind works like a stupid broken machinery like this, like taka, 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 day and night, between those taka, takas, there are some moments where it stops. And that's where it starts. That's why niroda parinama is like the easiest level. It's like a bit of instantaneous samadhi. It's a hiatus. It's like catching the mind in a gap. It's like the one second long samadhi. It's like the three second long samadhi where you are frozen and then, of course, the veil covers the reality immediately because your mind starts working and fills up the gap. Therefore, the first level is like it defines and a, a momentary one, and then of course a deeper and deeper one, as you will see. And he says, in the Sutra number 10, the flow of Niroda Parinama, this momentary stop, becomes tranquil by repeated impression also. Which means that even the supramental consciousness, even the superconsciousness, needs repetition or reversing for being mastered. That simply says, you may have a momentary moment of gap, but you have to repeat it to make it tranquil, he says here, prashanta, so to reach supreme peace, which simply means to make it last for long, because almost everybody, we can teach you in yoga courses, methods in a matter of 10 days. I can get you to teach you some methods where you'll have some short glimpse of something. But that is not enough. That's far from being enough because after that you have to understand how to stabilize it, how to stay on it. Because to have a one second flash like glimpse of something doesn't really solve the problem. It's also something which you can't understand. If any one of you would be helped to reach a one-second samadhi, I can guarantee from experience, I can tell you, that that one-second samadhi is not making you understand anything. Neither what samadhi is, nor who God is, nor who am I, 
nor what Atman is, nothing. It's more like something which comes and goes so quick that there is no really any use, direct usefulness of it. Yes, it does have a usefulness, metaphysically speaking, but that you cannot see directly. And that is why Patanjali uses an auxiliary sutra. He first defines this Niroda Parinama, this short-term void, this interstitial void, and then he uses one more sutra while for the others he doesn't, but for this one he does, saying that the, this flow of Niroda Parinama, which is so so fleeting, so so short, it becomes tranquil, it becomes stabilized by repeated impression, which simply says when you know how to do such a thing, you should do it again and again, hundreds of times, thousands of times, because slowly, slowly you will determine it to get prolonged and stabilized. The eleventh Sutra is another long one, difficult one. He defines the second level. He calls the second level Samadhi Parinama. Another, the transformation of Samadhi. The first one was Niroda. There was no move, there was freezing. The frozen Parinama, the frozen modality. And this is Samadhi Parinama, which means when this has become established, you start experiencing what actually is called Samadhi in the normal way. And he says, the Samadhi Parinama, that state of mind, that trend, that movement of mind, that transformation of mind, which is specific to Samadhi, is the disappearance of all-pointedness and the appearance of one-pointedness in the mind. So in the middle of this, reaching for this small Parinamas, there is still the tendency that your mind is all over the place. He calls it all-pointedness, like Sarvarta he uses in Sanskrit, like all over everything, all over the universe. It's exactly like you say, my mind was all over the place, like I was distracted still, and to replace it with one-pointedness. So he says, Besides the fact that you have to be able to reach some voidness, you have to be able to keep your mind focused, which is a classic, that's the next condition which is required. That is why the funny thing is that some people taught different methods. Gurdjieff taught some funny methods of reaching state of void. Osho Rajneesh speculated different traditions of Asia, teaching some of these void techniques, including some of his... Uh, uh, funny or at least unusual, unorthodox meditations where you should laugh, cry, stay silent, fall down, practice all kinds of stop-like techniques, those were Gurdjieff's preference, actually. But if you don't go beyond this level to give yourself a shock, a jolt, and if you do not develop concentration, the one-pointed concentration, you cannot go beyond that level. That is why to have small niroda parinamas, small gap, gap-like void, is not good enough. You still need to bring yourself to the point where you focus the mind exactly in those gaps so that you stabilize the experience. 
And that is why, as you can see, some degree of concentration of the mind is inevitable, even when you use flashy methods, they use, yes, we can put people by making you dance the dervish dance like Gurdjieff did, and then asking you to stop, to freeze, and you will fall down, and you will have all kinds of strange sensations and glimpses of something which is inside you. But if that is not as accompanied by concentration and exercises which follow therefrom, you cannot reach the samadhi. So the samadhi is like putting together these parinamas, extending them and making it become a state of your spirit which is obtained through concentration. And because I want to finalize this idea, I will continue immediately with the next because Patanjali doesn't explain more. He says this and then he speaks about the third one which he mysteriously calls Ekagrata Parinama. The Ekagrata Parinama being like the Ekagrata is a term in yoga which means completely focused. So funny, uh, he finds a name which seems to point lower but it is actually just a name which he found for it. And he says, then again when the subsiding and rising cognitive acts are proportional, this state is called one-pointed transformation of the mind, or otherwise said, ekagrata parinama. Ekagrata, eka is one, and grata point, so point, like object of concentration. So ekagrata means one-pointedness. This sutra alludes to something very, very beautiful, very beautiful in the tradition, and that is the point where indeed Patanjali brings an element which is beyond his normal theories, which is of a tantric nature rather than of a Vedantic and Sankhya type of nature. He says again, and then again, so even further, when the subsiding and rising cognitive acts are proportional, their state is called one-pointed transformation of the mind. He basically says, in the middle of this, there should appear a balance of the extroversion, introversion. It's like one is in the middle. That's exactly the same situation as when your breath stops, and that is called pranayama, remember? He commented on pranayama, and he said that the superior stage of that is when there is neither need to inhale nor need to exhale because you are caught in the middle. It's like when your lungs are full, there is a tension because you want to exhale, there is pressure. When your lungs are empty, there is a void because it will need to be filled up. But when you are exactly in the middle, there is nothing, there is zero tension. You don't want neither to inhale nor to exhale. So usually if it stops right in the middle, that would be the perfect pranayama, he said. It's exactly the same thing, but applied to the mind. In your mind, there are thoughts which come in and thoughts which go out, so to speak. There is the beginning of an idea and the end of an idea. A thought leaves and another one comes. You can say that one of a, uh, a thought sets and another one dawns. It's the same thing. Well, this movement of setting and dawning, of going away and coming up, he says, if it becomes proportional, it's exactly like midway. You are neither breathing out nor breathing in, 
but mentally. It's like your mind would breathe. And it's like your mind neither exhales nor inhales. It's kind of half inhale and half exhale, which would be like in a state of peace. This analogy with the breathing is actually showing a state in which the tendency towards outside extroversion and introversion is cancelled, is equal. I don't know if you realize, those of you who have heard our lecture in the second month about the philosophical basis of yoga, must remember the story about Purusha and Prakriti. This inhale-exhale is not about the mind, it's about creation and dissolution. We can say that the spirit, Atman, Purusha, when it exhales, it creates, and when it inhales, it restores. So basically, there is like the spirit communicate, creation, and dissolution. They are the two opposite movements in the universe. The one coming from the spirit, and the one going back to the spirit, which we discuss so much in Kashmir Shaivism as well, and uh, again in those philosophical uh, bases. And therefore, he simply says, those two become equal. When you will get to know more about Sahasrara, and the yoga of the higher consciousness, especially under the view of Kashmir Shaivas, you will see that that corresponds to a very special technique which they had, which was called by Rabi Mudra, and then in the advanced stages it was called Krama Mudra, in which basically there was exactly this game of interiority and exteriority. And the point of all this working with inside and outside is not breathing, not air, but as mental substance, as thought, is actually to reach the state of bhava samadhi, in which there is an equal perception of the inside and outside. Therefore, while in the chapter about samadhi, Patanjali doesn't really speak about this sahaja samadhi, bhava samadhi, samadhi with the eyes open, samadhi which contains purusha and prakriti at the same time, Nevertheless, he does make an allusion by defining first Niroda Parinama like the short glimpse of enlightenment, Samadhi Parinama like the stabilized feeling, the stabilized state of enlightenment, and defining Ekagrata Parinama as a sort of superior state in which there is, one is on the edge, one is on the verge between manifestation and non-manifestation. The creation and dissolution are 50-50, and one is in the midpoint between the two. Therefore, there is to be presumed that there is some understanding in the case of Patanjali, even about these things, although he did not intend very clearly to make them part of his theory about Samadhi and about enlightenment. And a couple of sutras still before we reach to the application, which again we are not going to uh, comment tonight as far as I can see. So, he simply defined three types of parinama. Again, samadhi, he plays with words. He talks about the same spiritual levels. And then he says the following thing. By these three parinamas, which would be called again, like... Uh, transformations of the mind, if you prefer, transformation of the level of consciousness, that represent the nature, character, and conditions in the 
that represents the nature, character and conditions in the elements and sense organs have been explained. So by this, the three parinamas, the three states that represent nature, character and conditions in the elements and sense organs have been explained. He makes a wonderfully fine connection here. He has described three parinamas of the human spirit. The instantaneous one, the prolonged one, and the one where the supreme balance has been reached. And he says, and this is comparable to the famous law of three of Gurdjieff and to the stages of any process which is divided in three steps. And there, then he says, by this, by describing this, the three parinamas, the three modifications that represent the nature, character, and conditions in the elements and sense organs have been explained. He says, exactly like you have Rajas, Tamas, Sadva, Kapha, Pita, Vata, and everything, which is three, Icha, Jnana, Kriya, Sat, Chitananda, and all the things which are triadic, exactly in the same way he says, because I have defined three stages of things, which are like three stages of an action, because a human being goes to the first, if he practices more yoga he goes to the second, and if he practices even more, he reaches to the supreme one, to the completion, to the consummation of the spiritual experience. Exactly in the same way, he says, this, uh, this describes or explains the nature, character and conditions in elements and sense organs. The elements are the five elements, earth, water, fire, air, ether. The sense organs are the indriyas, the nose, the tongue, the, which correspond to the chakras. You all had a lecture about indriyas, the sense organs and how they are related to the chakras and to the elements. And basically what he's telling to us is very subtle. He says, in the same way, the, in the same way in which there is the nature, character and conditions. Like what is the nature of the fire element? Which is the character of the fire element? Which are the conditions that describe the existence of the fire element? He says these can be understood by the same triadic pattern. Exactly as you have the first glimpse, the full accomplishment and the total balance, exactly in the same way you have for the elements as well. You have a glimpse, you can put it like, let's take something like with Shambhavi Mudra, right? Shambhavi Mudra is first a glimpse, then it becomes a continuous experience, then it becomes a balance between inside and outside, when you can open your eyes and still see your beloved ping pong ball, or whatever you do there, thus understanding the nature of light, reality, creation, and all the others. And that is why here Patanjali makes a wonderful crossing. He has described three things which represent three steps in our evolution, in our progress in Samadhi, and he says it is exactly so that it is with understanding elements and uh, sense organs, which simply means different levels of consciousness and chakras. In all of them you have first the glimpse, then the stabilization, and then the perfection, the state of equality of the inward and outward, the perfect power, the perfect accomplishment. It would be like a time which is yin, a time which is yang, and a time which is yin and yang, therefore balanced, transcending. You can put it in that way as well.
So this is where he made the springboard for his first Samyama. He's in the Sutra number 13, and he said by this, by, by this simile with the three things of mind, you also understand what is happening in the evolution or in your knowledge about every element, every chakra, every object, every sense organ. It is just like this. And he uses, these are really, really difficult sutras. Uh, you probably get a bit uh, um, provoked by them. It's a bit difficult to follow. Don't worry, this, this part is not really the one which you should use. This is more the one in which he justifies why what he's going to say next works and how it works. The practice does not start from this level because if it would start at this level, nobody will be able to do it because everybody has a very fuzzy understanding of what I'm saying here. And I'm going to try to read the next two and then to stop before the Samyama series starts. And he says, the Dharmi, the characterized object, it's a twist of Sanskrit word from Dharma, Dharmi, the characterized object is common in all the latent, active, or unpredictable future properties. He uses a colorful language because he's trying, he uses a twilight language. He's trying to cheat He's trying not to say really what it is. It says the characterized object, which means the subject, the element, the sense organ, an object upon which you do meditation, a subject on which you do samyama, anything which will come lower in the text now, all the things that we are going to speak about, he gives us the general theory of what he is going to say. He says this characterized object, because he said it's the same pattern with these three parinamas. And he says, this object, whatever the object will be, is common in all latent, active, and unpredictable properties. And it's funny, he says three things, and it's obvious that those are those three parinamas. He describes three stages, but you don't understand what he does he speak about when he says latent, active, and unpredictable. unpredictable. What he says actually is past, present, and future. He describes the latent aspect is the past. So he says in everything there exists this transition, that there is a latent aspect which is what is dormant, what has passed already. There is a, the active aspect which is what is it now. And there is the unpredictable aspect which is the future, actually, because it's unpredictable from the standpoint of common knowledge. So, therefore, he links wonderfully those three things. That first there is a glimpse, a stopping. Then there is a stability of that stopping. And then there is a perfection, a balance. He links it with past, present and future. Like in every object you have this kind of thing. A seed, a stable seed, and a perfectly blossomed and balanced result of it. This is to be meditated. These two sutras are coming from very deep meditation, and I have warned you about it. These are, he, he makes a mental connection, a simile, in which he takes a triadic thing and puts it over another triadic thing to make understanding. And he says, this, it is like this, in the same way as this, it is three, in the same way this is this three. It is exactly as I would try to explain to you, Kapha, Pita, 
and no, the other way around actually would be easier, as I would try to explain for you tamas, rajas, and sattva from Indian philosophy and metaphysics by comparing them with kapha, pitta, and vata. And I would say tamas is a little bit like kapha, and kapha people tend to be tamasic, and pitta is like rajas, and rajasic people are a bit like pitta people, and uh, vata is like sattva, and vata people have something of the sattvic nature. You understand? They are not one and the same thing at all, but I use one to explain the other and to give you a similitude, an analogy, which shows you how it is. In the same way he jumped from the three samadhis, which define moments in the spiritual thing, to the three characteristics of the perception of an object or of any reality. When you perceive your Manipura, let's suppose you want to work on your Ajna Chakra, and there is the latent aspect of Ajna Chakra, which comes from your past, it depends how much you worked in previous lives on your Ajna Chakra. There is the active aspect, which is what is now, and there is the unpredictable aspect, which is the future. And all three, therefore, can be compared with a three-step process. It's like future, I'm sorry, past becomes present and present becomes future. There is a continuity between them. These three are not separated from each other. And he says, the object is common in all the latent, in all the past, present and future properties, and the sutra number 15, which is the last of the heavy duty ones, uh, and the last, after that he goes into the flesh of it, and therefore next time you are going to have the pleasure to hear much, much more exciting things, although these ones are exciting as principle, he says in sutra number 15, the differentiation in the process of succession described above is the cause of the transformation. Therefore, he basically says, either you take it as latent, active, unpredictable, past, present, future, or you take it as the three parinamas, the Niroda parinama, the Samadhi parinama, the Ekagrata parinama, you are basically describing this is the cause of transformation and there is this process of succession, the past turns into present, and present turns into future. That's the way we know it. That's the way our mind, we are hypnotized by Kali to see the world in this way, that past becomes present and present becomes future. That's what existence is for us. We are subjected to this compulsory law of time. And to show you where he goes, I'll end the final sutra for tonight, will be the sutra number 16, where he simply abruptly starts going into the applications. The Sutra number 16, which is the first of the famous 30 that describe the amazing things performable through Samyama, then he says, now that I have told you about the three Parinamas and the latent, active and unpredictable and, uh, and that everything is having this transformation and it's a process of succession and that's the essence, the cause of transformation, he says, by performing samyama on this threefold change, knowledge of the past and future arises. So, he simply says, whoever can focus to the point of doing samyama on this threefold division, it's such an abstract thing, if I'm asking you to do samyama on a black dot, you might 
But now I'm Patanjali says, make Samyama on the threefold change of Niroda Parinama, Samadhi Parinama, Egagrata Parinama, past, present and future, latent, active and unpredictable as phases of how can you concentrate? It's such an abstract subject, it's like a thought. How can you concentrate on a thought? It's like you have to keep this thought in your mind and look at it, abstract as it is, with all your strength without thinking about anything. Well, Patanjali says, if you manage to think about this process for a long time enough so that you become absorbed into it, therefore you reach some, some level of Samyama, there appears, by performing Samyama on this, knowledge of the past and future arises, which is a typical clairvoyant capacity to know the past and the future. This capacity, says Patanjali, if you want to obtain this from Ajna Chakra, you have to perform a conceptualization of the threefold process and to concentrate on it until you become one with it. Exactly as you'd concentrate on your Ajna Chakra, or as you'd concentrate on a black dot on a wall, or on a Yantra, and feel that you become one with it, exactly in the same way Patanjali says you have to concentrate on this threefold process, on this threefold change, from latent to active to unpredictable, from Niroda to Samadhi to Ekagrata, and thus understand the past and the future, he basically says, knowledge of the past and jnana, he uses the word jnana, knowledge of the past and future arises. Any one of you wants to be able to see the future, you have to perform samyama on this threefold concept. It's a concept, it's like a philosophical idea, and you have to dabble on it for hours until you feel you become one with it. Of course, it will not work from the first day. You have to think about it 20 minutes today, 20 minutes tomorrow, and so every day until you start going into it. Remember that Albert Einstein did not manage to see himself riding a light beam in the first attempt. It took him years. He said all his teenage, he tried for years and years, and he succeeded a bit better every day until he saw. Therefore, it's the same here. You have to perform Samyama on an abstract concept. The first Samyama is a bit scary. People say, oh boy, they promised us some very enchanting things. And now the first one, I almost don't understand what I would have to do tomorrow if I would want to practice this thing. Is it all going to be like this? No, fortunately, at least half of these Samyamas are much, much more concrete and accessible. But it's true, Patanjali, because he comes from the spiritual things, he comes down and he comes a bit abruptly, and he enters into the Samyama subject by describing one of the most difficult and abstract Samyamas that there are in all this list, perform Samyama on the threefold change, on the triple Parinama, and on the triple thing, and you will start seeing the past and the future. You will have clairvoyance of events past, and you will see things of the future. In Tantric Yoga, we say that this comes from Vishuddha Chakra. If you want to see Akasha images from the past, or Akasha clips from the future, you should do yoga, you should do 
meditation activates Vishuddha. That's why somebody would say, if we do Samyama on Vishuddha chakra, doesn't it come to the same thing? Yes and no. Yes, if you would do Samyama on Vishuddha chakra and reach to the point to have Vishuddha chakra 100% activated, as Jesus had Anahata or as a Zen master has Hara, Manipura, then surely, among others, you would have the capacity to see the past and the future. But doing Samyama on Vishuddha would also give other Siddhis and other characteristics which are wonderful. And therefore, Patanjali is just filtering one. Basically, you can say that if you do the Samyama from the Sutra number 16, you will activate an aspect of Vishuddha, which is that particular aspect of Vishuddha which makes you see the past and the future. So, there it is the same thing, but here it is specialized. It is funneling exactly to this one. So, Sutra 16 is the first of the demonstrative one. Next time you will have a whole shower of examples from Patanjali, and for some of them it will be possible to do small applications as well of concentration of demonstrating how some of these things are working in the intention of Patanjali. Now that we have gone through this difficult exercise tonight, let us meditate for another five minutes on Ajna Chakra.